As you guys know, if you've been here for a while, we're looking at the last 10 years of Paul's life as he finished his race for Jesus strong. And this week, I had just been sitting with Justin Presnell talking about the message about finish strong. Came out of that meeting and got in my truck and looked on Facebook and found out that, that this man right here, Tim Gunther, uh, one of the, the pastors in my life, had finished his race strong Friday morning at, at 8.30. And it took me about half an hour to process this because love this guy, love his wife. Uh, they, they poured into my life and Carolyn's life and Matt's life. And Friday, 8.30, he snapped his finish line. And I know that he got a, a well-done, good and faithful servant. I know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. He, he, this guy loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. He never went to Bible college, but he was a youth pastor at a church of 1,500, had about 200, 300 kids in his ministry. And you know where, where he got the, the knowledge and the, the skills for that? He woke up every morning and spent two hours in God's Word, with God, before he ever did anything else. He loved God. He, he loved His Word. He loved His wife. They, they worked together like, like such a team. And uh, they never had kids of their own, but they, they made sure to pour into all the kids that came through their ministry. And he loved the, the people that, that God put around him. And, and he was hilarious. He was one of the best joke tellers that you would ever meet. He had this laugh that if you were anywhere in the same building with him, when he started laughing, you heard it. And he had so many, so many of those jokes that would just light up the room. And, and I think it was more than just him being naive or simple or just a foolish joke teller. He had a real joy uh, for life that just overflowed in everything he did. I, I try to think about what, what the biggest parts of his legacy were and there's so many that I could go into, but one that, that struck me about his life was that joy that, that he had for life, I really believe came because he didn't worry. I'm not going to say he never worried, because who can say that? But his life was not characterized by worry. God said, don't worry, seek my kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto you. And I believe he was a man that really lived that, modeled it, and because of that, this joy just constantly flowed out of him. And I thought, man, could you imagine a life free of worry? You know, if you could get rid of the worry in your life, what would you believe about you and your relationship with God? What would you believe about your relationship with Jesus? How would you wake up every morning? If you could get rid of the worry in your life, what would you do for Jesus? If worry was gone. Jesus said it. He said, don't worry. Right? He said, God made the birds. They don't, they don't store up food in barns, but he feeds them. He made the flowers. They don't sow or spin, but they're more gloriously dressed than, than princes. Don't worry. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. He loves you. Jesus also said that Worry can keep us from, from living a fruitful life for him. Remember the story of the plants? There was one plant that was choked out by the weeds, and he said that was a picture 
of someone who had received the gospel and then got choked out by the worries of this world. It can interfere with our, our ministry for him. One guy said worry is kind of like a, a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but won't get you anywhere. <laughs> Corey Tinboom said it this way. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Imagine a life without worry. How would your life look different if the worries you carried in here this morning were left at the feet of Jesus? We see that in Tim's life as he finished his race. We, we see that in the Apostle Paul's life in Acts chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. And I want to tell you that the overarching idea this morning that I want you to carry out of here, when you're on mission for the God who's in control, you are bulletproof until he says it's your time to go. I want to look at this starting in verse 30 of chapter 22, which is where we were last week, just to set the tone. You remember there was a riot at the temple and the Roman commander had gotten Paul out of there. Commander, verse 30, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. Wants to know what's going on. So the next day he released them and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. This Roman commander had to figure out what's going on with this Paul. So he calls the highest Jewish leaders together, gets Paul before him, and Really, he's thinking there's three options here. One, he's going to go before these leaders. And we're going to find out this is really inconsequential, so we're going to let him go. That's one option. One option is this is all about their religion, so they can try him. And the third option is we're going to find out there was some civil crime here, and we'll, we'll send him on to Rome. So there's the, there's the meeting that's about to happen. Verse 1, we're going to, going to read what went down in that room. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. What a beginning. What a bold beginning. You're, you're on trial. Your life's on the line. And you start like that. And what's, what's he saying to him? He's not saying, I've never sinned. But he's saying, look, guys, I've always done my best to follow what I knew of God. You know how I did that when I was a Jew, persecuting Christians. But then Jesus showed up to me. He spoke to me from heaven and showed me that he was the fulfillment of everything we believe. So now I do that. I, I do this in good conscience. Now check out what happens. You start out bold. Look what the high priest does. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Paul has not yet even been formally charged. He certainly hasn't been found guilty. And here's the, the highest religious leader in the land saying, smack him on the mouth. Watch what Paul says. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. You know what a whitewashed wall was? Ezekiel had talked about walls like that in the Old Testament. There were walls that were real flimsy and, and cruddy on the inside, ready to fall down, but instead of fixing them like they needed to be fixed, you just throw a little paint on there. 
and it looks good. He's saying, you look good on the outside, but you're full of garbage. You're full of sin. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He's like, you don't care about the law. You don't just have someone that hasn't even been charged struck on the mouth. Paul's angry. He's got a sense of injustice here. Now watch what happens next. Verse 4. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? That was a big offense. To say something that bold to the religious leader of the Jews. Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's a quote from Exodus. He's almost owning up that he should, he is owning up that he shouldn't have spoken that way to the high priest, even in that situation. Okay, why he didn't recognize the high priest, there's all kinds of possibilities. One is maybe the high priest didn't have his official robes on this day because this wasn't an official meeting. One is he had been away for a while, 20 years maybe, and didn't recognize who the high priest was. One is maybe he wasn't looking when he heard someone say, strike him, and so he just reacted. But the bottom line is when he realized, he acknowledged it was wrong. But, but what I want to point out here beyond the interaction was that Paul was not worried about death. You're standing there with your life on the line and, and wrong or not, okay, he admits it was wrong to speak to the high priest that way. He was not worried about dying. You don't talk like that if you're worried about dying. He knew darn well where he was going. And set aside the wrongdoing for a second. I want to commend him just to say at least this guy had a pulse. Okay, he had a spiritual pulse. He had a fire and a passion inside of him. And he knew who was in control. It made him bold. I wonder if we got that kind of fire and passion and boldness inside of us like Paul did. I wonder, is the problem for most of us that, that we're too bold or is it the other way that, that sometimes we, we live our lives almost as though we don't have a, a spiritual pulse. We're, we're not passionate. We're... We're silent. Paul is not afraid of death, and so it made him bold. Can we say that about ourselves? Now, Paul was not reckless with that either. This is sort of a sub-point to that one. He wasn't afraid of dying, but he also wasn't reckless. Watch how smart he is in verse 6. Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. He's identifying himself with one half of this group. He did grow up as a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now watch what happens. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. What's Paul doing here? Divide and conquer. He's looking at this situation. He's like, they smacked me on the mouth before I've even been charged or sentenced. I'm not going to get a fair trial out of this. We got two groups on two different sides. Let's light the candle and see what happens to get me out of here. So he throws it out there. My hope is in the resurrection of the dead. And that's true, but 
the way he identified himself with the Pharisees was all about moving this thing on so he could get some place where there was going to be a fair trial. Verse 9, there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? He's got half of him on his side now. They're fighting with each other. And check this out. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Justin shared with me that one of the few other places that torn by pieces shows up in the Bible is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when Samson tore the lion. You remember that? This is how violent these people were. They wanted to tear him to pieces, so the commander ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, Paul was not worried about dying. He knew who was in control. What would happen if we walked out of here with that kind of faith in God who's in control? I'm going to be bold in whatever circumstance I find myself because God's in control. Even though I'm going through this disease, even though I'm going through this hardship financially, even though these people at work hate me because of the stands I'm taking, even though my friends are mocking me some, I'm not afraid. I'm not worried. I trust in God. Now here's the second point. God gives us the encouragement we need. You may be here this morning facing some worries, facing some hard situations. You can't do it on your own. God does give us more than we can handle on our own. Paul said in Corinthians, if you remember, that things happen to him that made him despair even of life itself. God gives us more than we can handle on our own. He doesn't give us more than we can handle with him. Verse 11, check this out. Right after he's almost torn to pieces, he's back in his cell in relative safety. Verse 11, the following night, how sweet is this? The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify about me in Rome. The Lord himself shows up there. says, Hey, I'm, your time's not done here. You're, you're going to get out of here safely. Your mission is to go to Rome and you're going to get there. Imagine the courage that would give to Paul that no matter what's going on around him, I'm going to get where God wants me to go. Maybe you have had God spoke, speak to your heart before at a moment of trial where he comes beside you and says, Hey, you, I'm with you. I'm with you, and I've got a plan. We may not know all the details like Paul did, but we can know for certain that wherever it is God wants us to get to, we're going to get there, no matter what goes on around us. Where do we get that kind of encouragement? God. Where do, we, where do we connect with God? It's in our prayer. It's in our time in the Word. It's in our listening to His Spirit as He speaks to us through His Word, isn't it? Tim, two hours every morning <laughs> in God's Word. No wonder he was filled with joy. No wonder he, he wasn't worried. That guy would tell people about Jesus just as easily as he told a joke. I mean, he, he would tell anybody 
anywhere about Jesus. He, he wasn't worried. We only get it from his word. But worry, worry will shut out the voice of God. James McDonald pointed out to me that when I was listening to one of his messages that, that worry is, is much like if you've ever had somebody with the remote control at your house that goes from channel to channel to channel to channel to channel to channel and they don't stop. You know how frustrating that is? It's going from channel to channel to channel. That's what worry is like. It's this double-mindedness where I can't focus on anything. I think about this situation. I think about this one. I worry about this one. And I worry about this one. And our minds are not meant to be divided like that. It's unhealthy for us. It's like pouring sugar in your gas tank or putting a virus in your computer. That's what worry will do. Listen to what one doctor said about worry. This is a doctor. He said, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air, but in faith and confidence I breathe freely. These are my native air. And he goes on to share that a John Hopkins University doctor says, We do not know why it is that worriers die sooner than the non-worriers, but that is a fact. Then this doctor says, But I who am simple of mind think I know why. We are inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain cell and soul for faith and not for fear. God made us that way. To live by worry is to live against reality. We're made to live by faith, not worry. So if, if we're crippled by that worry, it's going to take away from our joy. It's going to take away from our effectiveness for Jesus. If we lay it down here, walk out of here trusting in a God who's in control, just imagine the freedom. Imagine how your life, how your home would change. Final point here this morning, the remainder of this chapter, we're going to look at how God moves all the pieces to accomplish His will. Okay, Paul gets this encouragement from God, and boy was it timely, because look what happens the very next morning. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Now just that first phrase tells me something. You got, yeah, they were serious. You got 40 men saying, we're not going to eat or drink until this is done. It means one, they're serious, and two, they want to do it quick. So I don't know how many men like to miss too many meals. <laughs> Not going to even eat or drink until this guy's dead. Forty men. More than forty. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him 
before he gets here. And you know the crazy thing about this? As we keep reading on, we find out that the religious leaders said, okay, we're in. These guys that care so much about the law, we're in on this plot to kill this man. It reminds you of Judas and the 30 coins and the priests, right? But check this out. God's in control. When the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. How he found out, we don't know. But Paul's got a nephew hanging around the city and he catches wind of it. Why does that happen? God's in control. He went into the barracks and he tells Paul, Paul, what does Paul do? Does he say, hey, I trust God, so don't worry about it. Just go home. Everything will be okay. No, Paul trusts God, but he's also not a fool. He knows God uses circumstances. So he says to one of the centurions, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And check out this commander. There's such a contrast in this passage. This commander is such a man of integrity and gentleness compared to the religious leaders. This is a Roman commander. He took the young man by the hand. He may have been very young, maybe even younger than a teenager. This big, tough commander says, come in here, tell me what you know. What is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this. And he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Did you count that? 470 soldiers. God's in control. To go to Caesarea at nine tonight. They're going to take Paul out of the danger zone. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now the fact that this commander believed this young man probably means that this commander knows Ananias, the high priest, pretty well. History tells us that this guy really was the slimeball that he appeared to be. He had organized assassinations. He had, he had climbed to where he was by bribes and other sorts of sinful behavior. So the commander hears this young man. He's not like, oh wait, that's the high priest. He's like, yeah, that's Ananias. He probably is doing what this young man says. So they get this detachment ready. And this commander, who we find out in verse 25, his name is Claudius Lysias. He writes a letter to the governor in Caesarea, preparing him to go with Paul this letter so that the governor knows what's going on. Get him to safety. Get him to the governor to handle it. As we read through this letter, you probably get a couple chuckles because I don't know if you've ever done this. He goes out of his way to make the story sound just a little better than it actually was. You know, he's writing to his superior, so he wants to make sure he looks good. He says, To His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him but I came with my troops and rescued him. 
if you remember the story, he actually arrested Paul. Okay, but we're going to use the word re re rescued in our letter because now we know he's a Roman citizen. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. You guys remember in the real story, he only found out that he's a Roman citizen when they were about to flog him nearly to death. And Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, but he doesn't share that with the governor. I just learned he's a Roman citizen. I wanted, him to, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. The next verse is share of the journey. Verse 34 says, The governor, Felix, read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. In other words, the Jews would have to come to Caesarea and present their case. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. That's kind of a long section. I want to sum it up by saying, think, think about what's going on here. Okay, all the pieces. You've got Paul. You've got Roman commanders and centurions. You've got Jewish men making a plot to kill Paul. You've got the Sanhedrin. They're all on different sides of this thing. But you know what? God is like the ultimate chess player. Because he's using all these pieces to accomplish his will, which is what? To move Paul one step closer to Rome. And that gives me great comfort. It's not just true of Paul. You can think of multiple stories in the Bible. The story of Joseph, sold into slavery, falsely accused at a job, thrown into jail. Why? So that he could eventually be released from that jail and raised to the second highest position in Egypt to provide food for the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. You go home and read the book of Esther. A man named Haman wants to kill the Jews and everything God did to orchestrate the timing of meetings to the point where a gallows that he had built for a Jew to be hanged on became the gallows that he himself was hanged on as truth came to the king of what was going on. God was in control. Do you believe that about your life? The thing about Joseph was so much of that was outside of his control. Same with Esther. So much of it was outside her control. We know that in our own lives. There are things going on in your life right now that are way outside your control. Things that you just cannot change even if you wanted to. But they're not outside God's control. And you can believe, like we said at the beginning, that when you're on mission for the God who's in control, you're bulletproof until He says it's your time to go. What kind of faith, what kind of boldness does this work today? Is God in control of situations where we're not? Dan is in the process of selling his house on our street. He wants to move to Prescott. And he and his wife put it up on the market. And they really wanted to get out of there as soon as they could and, and get the move on. But the, but the first couple that comes through and says, yeah, we'll buy it, the, the financing fell through. The second couple comes through and there's a dog next door that's normally very quiet, but that day the bark collar's battery died. And the whole time they're walking through, this dog's just... And the people walking through are like, I'm not going to put up with that. I don't want this house after all. Second one falls through. 
third couple comes and they start talking to them and they start going through the process and and as they're meeting talking about the house looking through it somehow the lady brought up that she, she was going through some hard times life was falling apart all around her and in long story short Dan's wife was able to share the good news of Jesus with that lady that's who ended up buying the house and I'm talking to Dan about that and he's saying you know what it was frustrating at times with that falling through like I really wanted that first one to go through and I wanted that second one to go through but looking back he's like I can see that God wanted that lady to hear the good news of Jesus Christ he was in control the whole time he wanted to bring me to that opportunity so as we look back and review just real briefly Paul was not worried about dying God gives us the encouragement we need and he's moving the pieces where he wants them according to his will do we believe that how would it change our lives if we were to walk out of here believing instead of worrying final story to, to drive it home there's a story of a man who is a, afraid of something being under his bed every night he went to bed and, and he couldn't sleep because he had such a fear of something's under there what is it check can't sleep check again so he goes to this counselor and the counselor says I'll help you fix that we'll set up 52 meetings once a week for the following year for $200 a meeting and I'll help you help you fix that couple weeks go by and the guy never comes back to the counselor so the the counselor calls him up and says hey I haven't seen you for a few weeks where are you at and he said oh my friend helped me fix it and the counselor says how he says he cut the legs off my bed <laughs> I thought in that story it was so simple it was so simple right just cut the legs off the bed well what's the ultimate cure for worry now, I'm not downplaying counseling because there are times we need counseling when I started this church plant somebody told me you need two things you need a mentor who's done it before and you need a counselor to go see once a week just to bounce stuff off of I did that and it was immensely helpful and there are times where we need good counsel especially from believing counselors I'm not downplaying that but but the underlying fix is really a whole lot simpler it's do I really believe in a God that's in full control because until you answer that question, it doesn't matter how much counseling you get. But you answer that question, you can walk out of here living boldly in faith. Father, I thank you so much for Paul and his example. To have that kind of courage in the face of trials which threaten your very life. It came from faith in you and uh, Father I don't believe the answer for us today is to go out of here trying to find more things to do for you if we're, if we're worried about many things if we're anxious and weighed down the starting place is to come to you spend some time with you and wrestle with that question do I really believe you're as big as you are that you're as in control as you are that you're as good as you are Father, I pray that you would minister that to our hearts this week. Help us to replace our worry 
with faith. Use us for your kingdom. Father, we thank you for Tim's example. And Lord, I just, just pray for his wife, that you would bring your comfort upon her. They were such a team. And Lord, I just pray that you'd minister all the grace and your presence that she needs to, to walk through this valley of the shadow of death. That we also look forward to the day where we meet up with him. And I just know it was a joyful reunion with you, Jesus, when he saw you. He snapped that finish line running full out. I can only imagine that, that moment. I imagine him kneeling before you. I imagine you saying, well done. Well done. Giving him a hug. And I imagined him telling another great joke up there. Lord, we're all, all of us that follow you are going to have that moment. I pray that you'd help us to finish our own races strong. Father, even as we prepare to take our offering, I pray that you give us wisdom to use that for that same purpose, to spread your good news throughout this community and this world. In Jesus' name, amen.